Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Uh, so we're, we're, uh, we just came out of a series uh, on um, uh, straight out of uh, Egypt, almost said Compton, uh, straight out of Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we finished that scary series. We're now in kind of Easter season. We have uh, this week, which is Palm Sunday, which we'll talk about, and then next week, which is our Easter celebration. And, so, um, and then we'll get into another series as well. And so we'll keep on, on that track. But today's kind of, a, kind of a standalone, a Palm Sunday message, right? And so I, I took some palms, branches from my, I have some palms in my backyard. And, so, and, and I just thought I'd bring them and go, you know, this is really interesting, Palm Sunday. Do you know, do you know what it's about? Do you even understand what the palms are all about? Like, what's the big deal about palms on Palm Sunday? Have you ever considered that? Most people just think of it as uh, Palm Sunday, it's the, the week before Easter, right? Right? And that, that's, that's as much as we know about Palm Sunday. And, and I, I think there's actually some really significant things that go with the palms. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to kind of go on a, a, like a, a road trip together where we do some investigating together. I need you to put your thinking cap on uh, uh, today for sure. All right? But the story goes that Jesus is coming into town. He's going into Jerusalem. And uh, just like Gabe said, all of a sudden people are, are throwing their coats down on the ground. Jesus is on a donkey. They're waving palm branches in the air. And they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And uh, that is Palm Sunday. Okay, and that's, that's where we get Palm Sunday. That's where we, and, but what, where is the excitement in that? What, 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 what is it to that? I mean, we all get excited because it's the week before Easter, but what is it with Palm Sunday that is so significant? And that's where we're going to kind of head today. All right? To do that, we're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 11. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, don't worry, it'll be on the screens. But I just need you, again, put your thinking cap on and, and think to yourself, today I'm going to go, I'm going to kind of dive a little deeper and do some investigating together and uh, ask some questions that maybe you weren't uh, normally uh, uh, ask of a passage, okay? Uh, I promise you, might be a little bit of a bumpy ride around here, uh, uh, but by the end, we will get there together, all right? So John chapter 11 is where we're headed John chapter 11, you'll see it on the screens. Let me just set it up. What's happening here is Jesus is doing ministry. Thank you. Jesus is doing ministry, and, uh, and, and then all of a sudden he gets word that a close family friend, almost like a family member type person, is sick. Okay? So he's doing ministry, and then all of a sudden he finds out that Lazarus is sick. Um, Lazarus is brother to uh, Mary and Martha. They're very close to him. We see them uh, show up in the gospel uh, a lot. Uh, Jesus, it's the type of thing they'd come in with all the disciples, and Mary and Martha would feed them all, and, and they're very involved. And so very, very close family type. I don't know if, you, if you're like me, I understand that real well because I didn't have any family in the States. My, my mother came from another country. My father came from another country. And so you develop family type relationships even though uh, they're not real family. Okay, you still have Christmas and somebody, you still have Thanksgiving. And so this is the kind kind of a relationship that, that Jesus has with these folks, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so he finds out that Lazarus is sick. And, and Mary is the person, by the way, who's going to end up pouring perfume on Jesus and washing his feet with her hair. That's what's going on there. That's the type of relationship. And Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick. What would you do in that situation? You find out Lazarus is sick. If somebody's that close to you, what would you do? And I can, I can imagine if I found out, let's say in between the first and second service, somebody came to me and said, somebody who you, who's very close to you is sick. What I probably would try to do is get through the second and third service, and then what would I do? I'd jam over to be on their, by their side, right? 
um, um, I, I would go rush over there. I remember when my mother was uh, dying and I got word that, that she was going to pass away within a week. That day we were on an airplane to go see her. And so not, not a foreign concept, the idea that we would just drop everything and go. If we're doing ministry, okay, try to get to the third service and then go. Maybe this is not a direct family member, but somebody's very close. I want to be by their side. And so we ask, what did Jesus do? In verse 6 of chapter 11, we find out that he didn't go, that he waited two days. Does that seem odd to you? It seems kind of odd to me. In verse 6, we see that he waited two days. In verse 17, we find out that when he finally arrived to see Lazarus, four days had passed, and he had been dead for four days. Isn't that interesting to you? All of a sudden, Jesus arrives there, and it says he gets there four days after Lazarus was dead. Interesting enough, the sisters run up to him, and I'm trying to paraphrase a lot because we're going to get to it, I promise. But the sisters run up to him, and both Mary and Martha go, you know, listen, Jesus, if you just would have been here, if you just would have been here, you could have raised him from the dead. I'm mean, sorry, if you just would have been here, you could have healed him before he died. Okay, they didn't know he was going to raise him from the dead. But they go, if you just would have been here, Mary says it, and then Martha says it, if you just would have been here, you could have healed him. Why did he leave so late? Why did he leave so late? I don't know. But it doesn't seem to matter because here's what happens. Let's pick it up at verse 33. You'll see it on the screen. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews had come along her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. And troubled. Where have you laid them, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some other of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It's a really interesting question. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was at the cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha said, sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor. If you have a uh, King James Version, it says, he stinketh. Which I always thought was kind of funny. Uh, by this time, there's a bad odor. His body has been decaying. He's been in there for how many days? Four days. He's been dead for four days. You sure you want us to roll this back? This is going to be, his body is at the point of decay now. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called out in a voice, and he said, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take the grave clothes off and let him go. Amazing, profound story. Jesus gets there, gets there late, but when he gets there, he raises him from the dead. Um, some amazing irony is going on in the story. I don't know if you caught it. He gets there, and he's about to raise him from the dead, and what does he ask? Where is he? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you're about to raise him from the dead. It's the guy who raised him from the dead, you think you know where he is. Or you're about to raise him from the dead, and he says, roll the stone away. Well, why does he do that? You're about to raise him. You could just roll the stone away yourself. Isn't that interesting? God, how God uses us, even though he knows he's going to do what he's going to do, he still uses us sometimes. And so we see this amazing story. Some people believe that because uh, Lazarus would have been mummified, 
okay? He would have been bound so tightly. They, they bound him so tightly so the bones stick, stay together. And then after a year of being in the tomb, they would, they would take the bones and then they would put it in a box and go separate. So they, 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 they allow a year for that decaying process. But in that mummified state, some people believe that he couldn't walk. And so when Jesus says Lazarus come out, he might have been floating out. Oh, it made, made the miracle that much better. The point is Jesus raises a guy from the dead. He raises a guy from the dead. And if we, if we just look and chronicle the, the, the miracles that happen in, in the book of John, you'll see that this is the climax of all the miracles. If you think of miracles and the progression of the miracles, of how they keep on getting better and better and better, uh, or, or, or the degree of difficult on every miracle, this is the height of the whole thing. Uh, in John chapter 2, he changes water into wine. Pretty cool. Uh, and then John chapter 4, he heals the official son. In John chapter 5, he, he, the 38-year invalid is healed. Then in chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people. You see how the, 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 the miracles are getting bigger and better and bigger and better. And then in John chapter 9, he heals the blind man, a guy who's never seen before, a guy who's completely blind. He allows him to see. And then finally in chapter 11, he raises a man from the dead. It is the climax of his ministry, his earthly ministry. All these things have been building on each other. And at the very end, he says, I'm going to raise a guy from the dead. Why does he do that? What is he doing? Well, the interesting thing is he says exactly what he's trying to prove in verse 25. Look on the screen. Before he does this miracle, he makes this point, and then he proves the point. Verse 25 says this. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The climax of his ministry saves his best miracle, so to speak, to say, I am the resurrection and the life. How can I be the resurrection and the life unless I can raise somebody from the dead? And so I'll show you. I'm going to raise him from the dead. And he foreshadowed what he was going to do with Lazarus and raising him from the dead. And he foreshadowed, foreshadowed what he was going to do in a week himself, which we're going to celebrate next week, when he died, was buried, and then he was resurrected. Strong, strong claim. I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so you see, the amazing claim and then the validation of that claim and the raising of Lazarus. So here's what we're going to do now. We're going to take a little U-turn. Okay, I need you to follow me here. This is where I need your thinking cap on. Okay, We're going to do something that you don't normally do. You usually just accept the story. Man, that's so cool. You see all these, 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 these miracles over and over and over again. And then you see this big, huge miracle. Man, that's awesome. He's God. And, and we, we, just, we just live there. But sometimes we need to ask questions that, that, that the first century reader would ask. That he would sit there and go, what's going on here? Why, why the two days? Why did you wait two days? And why did you get there four days late? How does that make sense? If you really love them and they're really close to you and they're really like family, that's what the reader would look at. Why? Why is it in there? In fact, even the sisters asked the question, why didn't you come? Why didn't you heal them? Where were you? And that's written all over the story. You can read it yourself. It's like 40-some verses long. But all over the story is these questions like, what is he doing? Why is he waiting so long? Why did he get her so late? Why didn't he heal him? Why didn't he heal him when he heard about it? Well, could he have done that? Well, Let's look at a little, another quick story, 
Okay, we're going to ask questions now. That might seem inappropriate. That might be, they might seem unfitting. They might, they might stir the pot a little bit. It might be a little incendiary, but we, I think you've got to ask the question because it's in there. It's in the text. And so why didn't he heal him right when he heard about it? Could he have done that? Look at this story. It comes from John chapter 4. Look at verse 46 on the screen. Once more he visited Canaan and Galilee where he had turned water into wine, and there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum, about 20, 25 miles away. Okay? This guy, when the man had heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from, from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, so, who was close to death. Unless you people see a miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. And the royal official said, sir, come down before my son dies. And Jesus replied, you may go, your son will what? Live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And when he was still on, uh, on his way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Now, okay, so, you know, they don't have buses, they don't have cars, so if you're going to walk 20, 25 miles, it's going to take you some days to get there. And then the father realized that at this was the exact time which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and all his household believed. And so here you have a guy who is coming on behalf of his son to Jesus Christ, who is 20 miles away from his son, and he says, come, please heal my son. And Jesus goes, I don't need to go. I don't need to go. He's healed. The guy heads back home. His servants meet him halfway and go, hey, your son is better. Hey, but what time did that happen? Oh, by the same time that Jesus said he's better. By the same time that Jesus healed him, he was healed 20 miles away. We see the same type of thing in Matthew chapter 8 with the centurion servant. Same idea. Hey, I'm a man of authority. I, I, when I say something, it happens. So if you say it, it'll happen, Jesus, just say that he's healed. I know he'll be healed. And he goes, wow, that's amazing faith. And he heals the guy from far away. What is the principle? Okay. What is the principle here? His power is neither limited by or subjected to geographic proximity to a person. Now take that in for a second because it's going to come back. His power is neither limited by or subject to geographic proximity to a person. He doesn't have to be close to heal. He doesn't have to go there and put his hands on somebody to heal him. So now let's take that principle and go back to John 11. Why, Jesus, didn't you heal Lazarus? Why didn't you heal him from far away? You could have done that. And why did you stay an extra couple days? And why didn't you, and why did you get there four days late? And why was he in the tomb for four days? What in the world were you doing? And again, sometimes we just glance by and go, let's just enjoy the miracle. And we don't ask the questions. I think everybody else who's reading that text in that time would go, there's something going on there. There's something going on there. The clues are written all over. So the last, the last part, what we're going to do now is just, Talk about why Jesus didn't heal Lazarus from afar. Promise we're going somewhere, all right? Hang with me. Uh, why didn't Jesus heal Lazarus from afar? You'll see it on the screen. I'm going to give you four reasons why Jesus didn't heal Lazarus from afar, and then we're going to go deeper into each one of them, okay? Four reasons why Jesus didn't heal Lazarus from afar. Number one, he needed, he needed him to be dead to prove his point. Okay? He needed him to be dead to prove his point. Remember, his point was in, chapter, in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I can't prove that point unless I have a dead person to rise, to raise up from the dead. 
All right? I'm going to prove that point. I'm, I, I have authority over life and death. I have power over death. And so he's trying to prove, I, I have, and so he needs him dead to do that. And so uh, if, if Lazarus is four days dead, there's no question in anybody's mind that the guy's actually dead. What if he's only dead for a couple hours? Oh, maybe he was just asleep. Maybe he was just sick. Maybe he wasn't really dead. And so he goes, no, I need him to be actually dead. If he's actually dead, then it proves my point. I am the resurrection and the life. By the way, he'll prove it again in a week when he raises himself from the dead. All right? So no question in anybody's mind that he's dead. Number one, he needed to prove, or he needed him to be dead to prove his point. Number two, uh, uh, he needed the crowd to see him raise him from the dead. He needed the crowd to see him raise him from the dead. All right. I'm going to develop this one a little bit more. Okay? Where Lazarus was is in the city of Bethany. That's about two miles from Jerusalem. Right now it's the Passover season, so everybody's coming and doing their kind of their homage trip. They're doing their, their trip where they're all going to be celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. If you're a good Jew, you would head there. Okay? And so it's just packed with people, millions of people all over the place. There's people all around. Okay? Uh, you can imagine uh, when, the, when the Super Bowl comes to town, Glendale and the, and the hotels in Glendale are packed. And so people start staying where? In Goodyear. And they start staying all over the place. It's jam-packed and everybody's heading to the Super Bowl. They're all going to go to the same place at the same time. So Jesus knows when he goes to Bethany, there's going to be a ton of people around, a ton of people watching him. He knows that's going to happen. And so he knows if he comes late, he knows Lazarus will be dead. And if he knows if he's Lazarus dead, he's going to come, he's going to raise him from the dead. Who's going to see that? A whole lot of people. And where are they going? To the Super Bowl. Now, to Jerusalem, right? And they're going to go in for, for for the Passover. And what are they going to do when they get there? They're going to tell everybody what they saw. They're going to tell everybody what they saw. So the word gets out that Jesus did this amazing, man, he's healed the blind, and, and people are walking, they weren't walking, and, and water into wine, all that stuff. But man, he, he raised the dead on this one, man. And the word gets out, and everybody gets so excited. And they, when they, he starts coming in to Jerusalem himself, he's riding on a donkey in John chapter 12. And they're laying their coats down, and they're waving palm branches in the air, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the interesting part about that, guys. In Psalm 18, there's a prophecy that they would shout his Hosanna, which means save us. Save us. In Zechariah 9, 500 years before Jesus walked on the earth, there's a prophecy. It'll be on the screen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. uh, Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a what? Donkey. 500 years before it happens. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. What he's doing is making sure, and this is where we get a little deeper here, all right? He's making sure that every prophecy written about him in the Old Testament happens exactly as it says it's going to happen. Because if they don't happen exactly like it says it's going to happen, he can no longer qualify as the Messiah. He's actively saying, I'm going to make sure all these things happen exactly the way they're supposed to happen. And so they wave palm branches in the air as a sign of victory. Look, our Messiah is finally here. He's going to give us victory. Hosanna, he's going to save us. 
as Gabe was saying earlier, we, we hate the Roman government. We hate that these people preside over us. We feel like slaves again. We need this guy. If he can use the same powers to heal people uh, from, their, from their blindness and, and ri- raise the dead, then surely he can deliver us from these people. And he was sent to deliver, but not the type of deliverance that they were looking for. While they were looking for physical salvation, he was wanting to deliver spiritual salvation. And, and in fact, a little sidebar, it still happens today. Maybe you're here today because you're hoping that God will spare your marriage. And God's more interested in you than your marriage. Maybe you're here today and you're hoping that God will be kind to you and that your kid will turn around. And God's more interested in you right now than he is about that situation. We do this all the time. My business is failing, so I'm going to go to church and get closer to God because maybe God can help me out. And God's more interested in your relationship with him than any of your circumstances surrounding it. They wanted physical salvation. He wanted to provide them with spiritual salvation. Every prophecy has to happen exactly as the Old Testament says. So we see in John chapter 12, Jesus comes in. He's on a donkey. They're laying coats down. They're raising palm branches in the air, the significance of Palm Sunday. And he fulfills the prophecy that that's supposed to happen. Number three, he needed to prove that he was the Old Testament Messiah. All right, here's what we're going to do now. I'm going to go through and list some of these Old Testament prophecies that had to happen exactly like the Old Testament said. So you guys who are note takers, you'll love this. Old Testament prophecies that had to happen the exact way for him to be the qualified as the Messiah. Here's what it says. Uh, uh, write this down. Genesis 49.10 says that he was supposed to be of the line of Judah. Of course, we know in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus was of the line of Judah. Isaiah 7.14 said he, he had to be born of a virgin. That was written 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth. Of course, we know in the Gospels claim that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin. Malachi 3.1 says a messenger would come and prepare the way for Jesus. Of course, we know the New Testament talks about how John the Baptist was the one who prepared the way. Okay? Uh, Psalm 34.20 says that not a bone would be broken in his body. You guys might remember at the very end, well, maybe we'll discuss this next week, at the crucifixion, they're about to break his legs. You remember that? They're about to break his legs because they want the, the, the religious leaders are pressuring. We don't want him to die on, uh, on, on a certain day, so let's break his legs or hurry up and make him die. And, and Jesus already died before that, so they wouldn't have to break any bones in his body. So he could fulfill that prophecy. Psalm 22, there's like five in this one. He actually quotes it, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote written a thousand years before Jesus died or came on the earth. And here he says it, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says in verse 7, they all mock him and hurl insults at him. Of course, we know in the Gospels that happened. It says that they would say to him, let your God deliver you now. That's in Psalm 22. When you read that in the Gospels, just know Psalm 22 predicted that would happen. They would say to him, where's your God now? Let him deliver you now. That happened. It says his tongue was dry and it sticks to the top of his, the roof of his mouth. We, we know in the Gospels that he asked for, for he was thirsty. It says in verse 16 that they would pierce his hands and his feet. Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Christ walked on the earth. They would pierce his hands and his feet. It says that they would cast lots for his clothing. We know in the Gospels that happened. Every prophecy written about the Messiah has to come true, or he's not the Messiah. 
Psalm 16.10, the Holy One will not see decay. And so we see him raised on the third day. Isaiah 53, he was a lamb led to the slaughter, and quietly did he go. And when we see him before Pilate, he doesn't say a word. Predictions about Jesus hundreds of years, even a thousand years before he walked on earth. And then here's my favorite, Daniel 9.26. Daniel 9.26 says that the Messiah must be cut off before the temple is destroyed. I dare you to go check it out. Write it down. Daniel 9.26. The Messiah is to be cut off before the temple is destroyed. We know the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so if the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., then that means the Messiah had to be cut off before then. So for people who are still waiting for the Messiah, what do you do with Daniel chapter 9, verse 26? He was already to be cut off. Secondly, in Daniel chapter 9, there's a very specific um, um, a prediction of the number of days until that would happen. Now, we get all confused because we don't know how the days worked back then, but the point is Jesus would have known exactly how they worked. And Jesus would have had the ability to know the exact day that he needed to die. And his whole ministry on the earth, he would have been making sure that he played the crowds just enough so he would die at the exact time he needed to die. Do you ever wonder why? It's like he, he does this miracle and they're like, he's the Messiah, let's make him the Messiah. And he, and he slips away. Somehow he gets away from the crowd. And you see this little phrase, it wasn't yet the time. You ever seen that phrase? And he does this, and it's almost like he's manipulating the crowds, and he calms them down. Then he gets them excited, and he calms them down. Then he gets them excited, and he calms them down. Then he gets them excited and points to the way they go into Jerusalem. They wave palm branches, which is a prophecy, and they, and they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That has to happen for him to be the Messiah. And I believe he dies on the exact day that he's supposed to die. And he was orchestrating it the entire time. Which leads this to number four. He needed to set the stage for his own death. He needed to set the stage for his own death. Ironically enough, the same people who would, who would, who would, who would raise the palm branches in the air and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, will in seven days' time will yell, crucify him. How does he get him to do that? He spends a week saying things that they would hate just so they go, they reject him. Oh, he's a false messiah. And they'll want to crucify him. Why do, I, why do I go on all that time to, to share all that? I think sometimes we read the scriptures and we think to ourselves that Jesus, here's Jesus, this good man. He's like, a, he's like a moral dude and he's walking through life just living morally, just doing his own thing. Look at me. I'm living for God, being moral, being a sweet, passive guy. And all of a sudden, oops, I'm dead. Like, oops, man, I, I just, I just I, going throughout life and, and I'm just doing the right thing. And, and like I tripped and all of a sudden I'm dead. I think we miss it. I think we miss it. I don't see Jesus as a passive guy going through life. I see him as an active participant making sure that he would one day die. Like I'm making sure, I'm playing all the, I'm, like, I'm a strategist here. I'm playing the crowds against the, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I'm playing the Pharisees and Sadducees against Pilate. And, and once, once I can orchestrate things just so I can die the exact time I'm supposed to die because the scripture tells me I have to, I'm going to make sure that everything happens the exact way the scripture say that's supposed to happen. I have to be 
validated as Messiah, and the only way it can be validated is if every prophecy comes true about me. He's not passive. He's not a pacifist. No, he's active, actively pursuing his own death. Why didn't Jesus heal Lazarus from afar? Because he needed every prophecy to be fulfilled, and he wanted everyone to know that his death wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an accident. What happened was not an accident. It was purposeful. And he was the one making sure that it all happened the way it should have. And why did he do this? Why did he do this? Because he wanted you. Because he wanted you. All because he wanted you. Nothing more than he wanted you. It's a beautiful passage in John 17 where Jesus is praying for his followers. And he acknowledges the people who would follow him as the gift of God to him. You are the prize for him. And in his divinity, I believe that he had your face in his mind while I was doing all this. Think about that for a second. Think about that idea. If you're here and you're a believer, everything he was doing was for you. Making sure that he didn't die on Thursday, but he died on Friday. So the scriptures could be, could be fulfilled. Why? Because you're his prize. Because he wanted you. All the pain and anguish that he would go through in that week. Emotionally and physically. Because he wanted you. It's very planned out. You were the gold. He wanted you. You were the prize. You. If you're a believer, that truth that he was actively involved in planning his own murder, so to speak, because he wanted you, should make you feel elated and that much more in love with God. Because you know you, and I know me, and I know what he got when he bought me, and I'm not that impressed. But that's what he went through to get me. And maybe you're here today and you're checking us out. And you're like, what are these guys, what are these guys all about? Well, you came on a good week. Because this is what it, we're all about. I come back to the statement. You'll see it on the screen that Jesus made before he raised Lazarus from the dead. In verse 25, it says this. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? What a strong claim that, that even death cannot overcome this life. You know, I'm not often very good at bringing people to a decision, but he does it for us right there. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Let's have everybody bow their heads and close your eyes. I don't know if you've ever considered Jesus being actively involved in making sure that everything happens just so, it, just like it's supposed to. 
so that he could fulfill every requirement to be the Messiah so he could save your soul. But that seems to be what happened. I don't know if you're our guest today and maybe, maybe you're watching on live stream right now and that question haunts you. Right from Jesus' lips, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's the question for you today. Do you believe this? Belief in Jesus Christ is what unlocks the life that he talks about. The life that not even physical death can overcome. Do you want that? Do you believe in this? If you do want that, I want to lead you through a prayer where you can start your relationship with God and have that life that not even death can overcome. Pray with me this way. Father, if this is true, that all these prophecies bear witness to Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. That even though I know who I am and, and, and what I've done, that you can forgive me if I believe in Jesus. Man, I want some of that. Because no matter what I do in this life, no matter how much money I make, I'll never be able to purchase my own soul and I'll never be able to purchase life beyond this life. And if what if you're promising is life beyond death here on earth, then I want some. And I say, I believe in you. I believe in you as the resurrection and the life. And for the rest of us, Lord, what a profound thought that Jesus went through his ministry orchestrating and making sure that everything would happen exactly the way it's supposed to happen. That everything would happen the way you had written it 400, 500, 1,000 years earlier. And why? So that he could have me. With all my warts and bruises and ugliness, I'm the prize. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.